boy. Happy birthday, dear Greg. Happy birthday to you. Thanks, buddy. Before we do anything, Mr. Greg. Yes? Uh... I have put something together here. Oh, no. In the spirit of celebration and retaliation. (laughs) (laughs) For my birthday, just 30 seconds of Greg magic. At the Ryer in Regina. I think I said the Ryer. The Briar in Regina. And uh, pardon the editorialization. Uh, The balance would uh, balance itself. Do you think we're missing out on that opportunity of people organically stumbling, stumbling apart, stumbling upon a place? As I mentioned, zero at 680, 68, uh, at, wait, let's try that again. Zero at 680, CJOB. That's uh, it. You've been collecting those, have you? 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least I know my mom won't be on the show today. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. That was cute uh, when you put my mom on. Uh, what was really funny about that, too, is my mom said, you sounded embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> Are you ashamed of me? Oh, anyway. shoot. Thanks, Brett. Yep. So happy birthday. Um, I should give a shout out to Kristen, who uh, yes. I don't know how long ago she sent that uh, lovely gift to you to bestow upon me today. But uh, Kristen, if you're listening this morning, thank you very much. I received your gift and... Uh, Always overwhelmed uh, when people uh, even mention, let alone remember, uh, my birthday. It's it's very kind. Thank you. I wanted to run out and I was I went golfing yesterday at uh, Kingswood, which, by the way, I got recruited. I went there with our old friend Sean Angus, who used to work here. Yes, and uh, we were in the lounge after the in the clubhouse after the round, and and uh, Christy, uh, the owner, and Dave, the head pro, came over with this. They were trying this new drink for ladies' night, because last night is ladies' night. It was like a raspberry and beer combination, and they needed our help to name it. So they recruited us to name it, and we all sort of brainstormed and came up, came up with the Kingswood Royal. But they took a picture of us having trying this drink at, uh, you can see Royal. it on their Instagram. It's a really good, um, good name. But I was going to go get something for you after my round, because I got yeah. home at like 4.30. Yeah. Uh, but someone had smashed out the, the back door, the window on our back door to our building. Oh, nice. And, uh, I ended up cleaning, me and my, my neighbor Kevin ended up cleaning that up for about an hour because there was glass everywhere. I don't know if someone threw something through the window because it had gone all the way down the stairs and up the stairs. It was just a spectacular I'm thinking someone smashed it with a bat or something. Great. So that act of vandalism cost you an hour and a half of your time and cost me a gift. Yes. Yeah. I'll get you something Thank, belated. Thanks a lot, vandal. <laughs> It'll be a belated Sleep gift. well tonight. <laughs> I can't sleep well. The heat is still on in my apartment. I can't get over that. It's still on. It's going to be 33 degrees coming soon, and then my heat is on in my apartment. Gee whiz. Unbelievable. I mean, I've been a landlord, am a landlord, so I understand all the rules and regulations, and you succumb to the requests of the lowest common denominator people who are cold at night. Mm-hmm. Get an electric blanket or a space heater so that they can turn off the boiler. You ever used an electric blanket? Yeah, at the lake. Uh, my buddy Harry's uh, cottage, they had electric blankets. They're the best. Really? Oh, fabulous. Yeah, absolutely wicked. I should get one. You should Although get I, one. Although I kind of like it when it's cold. So no, I don't mind it either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Okay. So I wish we were getting ready for Game Six, uh, Jets uh, Golden Knights tonight, but we're not. That would have been tonight. Yeah. Jets are all done. What an incredible season! An incredible series of street parties, uh, as we've been hearing in the news. No serious incidents. Uh, bumping into people from all over the place. Sitting behind me at the game on Sunday afternoon was Andy from New Zealand. His first ever NHL playoff game. Says he's New Zealand's biggest Jets fan. Wow. He's been working here in Canada, up north uh, at Lynn Lake. Uh, made the trip down for the game on Sunday afternoon. So, Andy, I know you're uh, making your way home right now, but was really cool to meet you and uh, bump into a whole bunch of folks, including Marc-Andre Fleury on Saturday night, was out at the keg for dinner. And uh, wow. my, my buddy Rob said, I got to go get a picture with them. I'm like, how can you even talk to him? <laughs> Well, you know, he's here. I got to get my picture with him. So he did. I said, well, did you at least kick him somewhere, you know, no. Useful? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, obviously, uh, whether he had or he hadn't uh, wasn't very... Very helpful. The the Vegas Golden Knights on their way in their first ever season. They don't even have a captain. They have a series of assistants ca- captains. So when they got the Clarence Campbell Bowl on Sunday afternoon, uh, one of their assistant camp- captains, Derek Englund, England went up and accepted the trophy on their behalf. So uh, congratulations to them. I uh, remember Cece that we had on the on the show from yes. Las Vegas. She would have come Text, here. She texted me immediately and uh, thanked Winnipeg for the hospitality and invited me to cheer for the Golden Knights through the rest of the playoffs. Will you be doing that? Uh, well, you might as well lose to the champions, right? Yeah. If you're going to lose, you might as well lose at the hands of the eventual champions. Uh, yeah. Game seven, Washington battling back after three straight losses. So lots of conversations still in hockey if you're prepared to have them. And the maybe the most heartening thing, I put flags, Jets flags on my vehicle last week. I figured that everybody would be pulling those off right away. Saw them all throughout the weekend, even this morning. Uh, on the way in, people with their Jets flags still on their vehicles. So uh, people not prepared to, you know, just walk away from what was an incredible season. Yeah, I was watching the, when I watched the uh, third period and saw the end of the game. And I understand how it works, right? I mean, sports after the games, there's always the post, you know, they the, the person on the ice or in the stands or whatever grabs one of the players and they do an interview as they're exiting. But uh I wanted to see the, the the curtain call, as it were, because I was so impressed with that. And I wasn't surprised, but it was still impressive to see all of the fans stayed and were cheering, even as the before the game was even over, everyone was cheering, and the, the Jets all had their sticks up, and it was kind of a... The, they weren't covering that. I thought that that should have just been, let's just show the Jets say goodbye to the fans and the right. fans say goodbye to the team. But instead, they were uh, interviewing some Golden Knight so that was frustrating to see. Yeah, you know what? I'll ask Kelly Moore and Christian O'Mell what they thought of this. Um, I would have liked to have seen the Jets stay on the ice and witness the Golden Knights receiving that Clarence Campbell Bowl on their home ice just to kind of, just one last dig, one last incentive to work a little bit harder this summer so that that can happen to them on their home ice or someone else's ice next May. I would have really liked it if the Jets would have stayed on the ice for that. Let the Golden Knights leave and then salute the fans, but that's just me. That's nitpicky on my part. Sunday's elimination. 
Really sorry to say these words together, Greg. Sunday's elimination of the Winnipeg Jets mm, in the hurts. playoffs marks the 25th year since a Canadian team has won the Stanley Cup. I had no idea it's been that long. As Erica Vella reports, a quarter of Canada's population hasn't even seen a Canadian team win the Silver Trophy. And once again, the chances for a Canadian hockey team to win the coveted Stanley Cup squashed. I wanted them to win because they're obviously a Canadian team. Making it 25 years since a Canadian team has won the Silver Trophy. Hockey is uh, Canada's game, but apparently not. We can't get a cup, so that's too bad. Just think, in 25 years, you could pay off a house. You could even raise a child and watch them move out of that house. And here in Toronto, you might even see a subway stop built. But a Stanley Cup seems to be a little harder to win. I think it's been long overdue. According to numbers at StatsCan, 28% of Canada's population is under the age of 25. So that means over a quarter of the country's population was not alive when a Canadian hockey team won a Stanley Cup. Benjamin Jigalik is 11 years old. That's not the best thing to hear. And he's one of those fans just aching to see a cup won by a Canadian team. It'd be good since they haven't won it in a long time because it'd just be good for Canada to bring that back to feeling to Canada. I think in Canada now we cheer for our particular NHL team, but we also cheer for the other Canadian-based teams because this has been a drought that's a little too long. Canada does seem to have less of an opportunity with 24 of the 31 teams being American, but it's no excuse. If you spun the roulette wheel over 25 years with one in five odds, you should have got a Stanley Cup. The last team to win the Hockey Holy Grail was the Montreal Canadiens in 1993. And now people have different opinions on who should be the next team to bring the cup back on Canadian soil. I would love to see Toronto bring it home. The Jets. Go Leafs, go. And even though it's been a tough 25 years, for Canadian hockey fans, the Stanley Cup is still in arm's reach. The Stanley Cup's in Canada all the time at the Hall of Fame in Toronto. Just maybe not in the way people want it. Eric Avella, Global News. Now Tristan Field-Jones filling in for Chandelier Vidal as content producer dug up some stuff, some other neat stuff from 1993. <laughs> Still can't believe it, 1993. The top five songs of 1993, starting from five. A song called Freak Me. I don't know that one. By Silk. I, I feel like if I were to hear it, I'd probably jog my memory, but it's been a long time. Uh, That's the Way Love Goes, Janet Jackson. Can't Help Falling in Love, UB40, which I believe was featured in the movie... Sliver, starring Sharon Stone. Is that what it was called? Sliver? Like they, there was like a sliver apartment building, a really tall. Yes, yes, yes. I remember it now. Uh, whoop, there it is <laughs> by Tag Team. Tag Team's back again. And of course, Whitney Houston, I will always love you. Highest grossing movie of the year, Jurassic Park with $914 million worldwide, which for 1993 was super impressive. No kidding. Who was president? Bill Clinton sworn in. North Korea announce, announces that it plans to withdraw from the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and refuses to allow inspectors uh, to access their nuclear sites. Uh, sound familiar? Sorry, you know. World but, Health Organization declares tuberculosis a global emergency. Jean Chrétien, the Liberal Party, defeat the governing progressive conservatives, which falls to two seats. And NAFTA is signed into law. And it was uh, three years uh, removed from the Blue Bombers' last Grey Cup championship in 1990. <laughs> Happy Tuesday as we embark on a short work week, at least for a lot of folks. If it's the end of your week, thanks for uh, working over the long weekend. And 
Couldn't believe how many people were out and about yesterday at the Home Depot and other places yesterday. People getting their flowers and their soil. And we got our flowers in yesterday. Thanks, Mom and Dad, for the help yesterday to get all that done. It's, it's a massive job to get the yard ready for the for the summer. Oh, yeah. You know, there's still leaves kicking around from the fall. I had to rake those up and actually had to cut my grass on Saturday morning from that little bit of rain we had. We'll talk to uh, talk to the folks at Manitoba Agricultural uh, to talk about the effect of the rain later on this morning. Uh, the president of the Keystone Agricultural Producers, in fact, Dan Major, will join us uh, later on this morning to find out if that rain had any effect at all. Tinder dry conditions, not only in the forest... But also in downtown Brandon, had to have some sort of effect. The wind, the heat, a devastating fire in Manitoba's largest city Saturday after, second largest city Monday, uh, Saturday afternoon. Boy, I'll be okay, Brad, I promise. Yeah, and coming up next hour, we're going to speak to the mayor of Brandon. But right now, we want to speak with a witness to the fire, Devrin Ross. Joins us now live on 680 CJOB. Devrin, good morning. Morning. Happy birthday, Greg. Oh, thank you, uh, Dev. Really appreciate that. As someone who spent four years in Brandon, I'm a fam- I'm familiar with all the buildings that were destroyed on Saturday. Uh, absolutely uh, shocking, apocalyptic. Uh, fill in your uh, adjective to describe what you saw on Saturday, Devrin. You know, I was uh, about 100 yards away from the Christie's fire. Um, as it was just really get go, getting uh, started, and it was uh, uh, amazing, unforgettable, and uh, you, the uh, the flame, the the heat that you could feel. Now, Christie's was a 138 year old five story warehouse uh, along the tracks in Brandon on Pacific Avenue. Um, the flames were another five stories above that. Um, it was a wall of fire, and you guys are right. Um, the wind, the heat. Um, if the wind had been just a little bit stronger, we could have lost half of downtown Brandon. My word. It was, uh, it was when there were a number of small explosions at Christie's, and then there was one really big one that was, near. I would say, identical to when you hear a royal salute when they use the howitzers. And that one sent debris and ash and flame in the air uh, hundreds of yards up in the air, and it was just coming down on everybody and everything uh, and it was in flames, and it ended up landing on other buildings. And um, uh, the beer vendor at uh, Fifth and Rosser caught fire. It was, it, I'll tell you, one of the most amazing things about this, this fire is that for years and years, when there's been a fire in a rural community outside of Brandon, the Brandon Fire Department has sent trucks to help. But on Saturday afternoon, when I'm standing there with a lot of people watching this fire at Christie's, and the Brandon Fire Department had every piece of equipment they had pouring water on that fire, and they couldn't knock it down. It wasn't making a dent in it. And you're thinking, what are they going to do? Because Massey Manor, which is, a, 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 again, a five-story affordable housing complex right across the street, you could see the smoke starting to build up from under the roof. And Brandon already was using everything they had. There was no way they could fight that. And suddenly, I'm standing there, and you can hear sirens from the east and from the south and from the west, and you're thinking... Where are these Where are these sirens coming from? Because all of our equipment is already on the scene, and suddenly you see the fire trucks from CFB Shiloh come rolling up Rosser Avenue the wrong way, and they're tackling the fire at the at the beer vendor. 
and there's trucks from Surus, and there's trucks from Wawanisa. And it was the most, in my entire life living here in Brandon, I've never seen the rural communities come to our aid. But I'm telling you, if they hadn't been there, we could have lost half of downtown Brandon. It was amazing. They arrived right on time, right when we needed them. And um, we are extremely lucky that we didn't lose more um, buildings than we did. This is devastating uh, in downtown Brandon. This would be the equivalent of losing at least a full city block in Winnipeg, if not two or three. And um, it is, uh, if the wind had been just a little bit stronger, if it had changed direction, even the extra assistance we received would not have been good enough. I mean, there was a point about 2.30 in the afternoon when the city of Brandon sent out tweets and, and messages asking people in the, the homes just on the edge of downtown to get their garden hoses out to protect their homes. Devrin, you talked about the heat. I mean, I said we've, you know, I've saw some footage of this and uh, couldn't believe what I was watching as the, the, the flames are just belching out of this building, shooting black smoke way into the sky. But uh, how, how close could you stand to this fire before it got too hot? Well, you know, I, like I say, I was I was at Seventh uh, and Rosser, so that's about a hundred yards, and there were about two hundred of us there. And I, you know, I was there was I had an escape plan, and I, and and uh, and there was an alcove there. But when that explosion happened, um, the building, you know, you could see Massey Manor was starting to to catch fire, and then the explosion happened at, at Collier's, and the smoke changed from gray and ashy to completely like tire fire black, and everybody started moving away and and it's good that that they and we did at that time the ash was coming down in flames the because the beer vendor was behind us and um and if people hadn't moved back at that point in time uh under certain circumstances they could have been surrounded by fire and one of the issues coming out of this is going to be you know frankly crowd control and uh people's uh, evaluation of how safe they are or they aren't. I mean, there were people with little kids that I was that I was turning back, saying, you know, you can't be this close to fumes like that because I mean, when Collier started going, there was oils and fires and or oils and tires and different things in that building, and the smoke was incredibly black. But um, we were, you know, we were very very lucky. This people could have been, you know, bystanders could have been uh, surrounded by buildings on fire very quickly. Devrin, uh, thank you for this incredible firsthand account of what took place Saturday afternoon. Lots of questions to be answered, lots of rebuilding to take place as we've got, uh, well, an affordable housing complex that needs to be rebuilt or at the very least people who live there, they need new places to be. Yeah, they're looked after right now and, and there, there are spots for them. But the big question for Massey Manor is going to be, uh, the severe water damage that it's received. It, it was flooded with water for 11 hours. It's an aquarium right now. Devrin, thank you so much for this. We very much appreciate uh, the access uh, this morning on CJOB. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. More on this story at cjob.com where you can see pictures, you can see just incredible footage of this devastating event uh, for the city of Brandon. Uh, once again, a uh, huge swath of downtown Brandon uh, destroyed by... Fire 
Yeah, just terrifying to see this uh, right in, uh, in the backyard here in southern Manitoba. I know that Christie's building used to go there for school supplies. I can remember going there. They would have sometimes uh, sporting goods and secondhand goods. So uh, being in that building once upon a time. And at one point, I had a report from uh, someone that the bus depot was actually on fire as well. But it happened to be the beer vendor across the, the back lane from the bus depot. So a lot of people on high alert, massive panic in downtown Brandon, as Devon Ross just said. They were on the verge of uh, losing uh, more than just a handful of buildings. And all I could think about was what happened in Grand Forks in the flood of 1997. It was about as close as I could get in my mind to what had taken place in our geographical area, at least in my living memory. Greg Mackling, Rebecca Gary, Tristan Field-Jones in for Shanalee Vidal for the next couple of weeks. Kelly Moore, Jeff Braun, and the omnipresent behind the glass, Jerry, gathering to uh, have a little coffee, have a chit-chat. Here's the headline, Winnipeg man killed in long weekend boating accident. And the last sentence of the story, officials said the man was not wearing a life jacket. And please, with all due respect to the individual who was killed in this accident, we're, we're not trying to blame any victims here. But what jumps out, I think, for all of us when we hear a story like this, as we seem to hear all too often Victims were not wearing seatbelts. Victim was not wearing a life jacket. What is it going to take for us to take these warnings seriously and for us to do things that we know are good for us to do them on a consistent, regular, if not all the time basis, Brett? Yeah, I remember, uh, I want to say probably about 15 years ago, I was out at a lake. I can't remember which lake it was. Let's just say it was in the Lac du region. I don't think it was Lac du but it was, we, and, uh, it was a it wasn't a huge body of water, but it was you know sizable enough, and it was deep. And I remember swimming out maybe even fifty yards, and I could just it had been a while since I'd been swimming on open water like that outside of a swimming pool, and I was not wearing a life jacket, and I I, I suddenly felt like it's been a while since I've done this, and you can feel the pull almost when you're out that far. So I came back in because I thought I'm I don't want to take any chances here. I'm not. Clearly, it's been years since I've swam like this, and uh, I don't want to take that risk. If I'm in a boat, canoe, whatever, I've got a life jacket on. And uh, I don't, I never don't put on my seatbelt. It takes one second. We heard Brian Smiley from Manitoba Public Insurance say it, it takes one second. So I don't understand why you wouldn't put it on. I learned when I was a kid. It's just like it's a, it's just a, par, a, move, a natural thing. You get in the car, you put the seatbelt on, done. Should be automatic, right, Tristan? You know, unfortunately, I think as a result of these uh, tragedies, what will happen is I guarantee you, everyone, the family of the victims, the friends of the victims, they will never, ever again question if they ever did in the first place putting on a life jacket because they were witness to or they were directly affected by a horrific event. I know I've mentioned this time and time again on air, but I will mention it again. I witnessed a horrific crash right outside my condo building a couple years ago. A driver was going way over the speed limit on Corridon, ended up flipping his truck, and we're lucky the truck didn't end up right in our swimming pool. The fact is that after seeing that, I was never the type of guy to do you know risky driving behavior in terms of drinking and driving or not putting a seatbelt on. But after seeing that and after seeing the aftermath and after seeing the state of the driver and the passenger in that truck, let me tell you, myself and every single person who was around there trying to help, we don't need a reminder as to why you put 
uh, your seatbelt on why you don't drink and drive. And unfortunately, I think for some people, it takes that horrific event to really cement it. And I, you know what, I've just remembered. Uh, a few years ago, New Year's Eve, was at Canadins Transcona at uh, whatever the bar was called at the time. I think it was the Oak or my bar. I don't know. It's Nashville's now. And uh, we were, I was going back to my buddy's place, not five minutes away in Transcona. And I, I'd had a few. He was driving, so I was the one who took advantage of the fact that I was not driving. Got in the car, didn't put my seatbelt on, and realized it about two minutes in. I thought... Holy crap, I didn't put my seatbelt on. So I put it on, and guess what happened? He hit a tree on the way home. <gasps> he took a took a turn. The car just lost control because it was slippery. He wasn't speeding, just yeah. lost control in the winter. And we cra- plowed into a tree, and had an up in for the seatbelt, I probably would, would have been through the dashboard. My word. And, and actually, one of the victims in that accident Tristan just spoke of was a little, well, back then, he was a little guy who used to show up at uh, our door uh, to play road hockey. Uh, we knew the family very well. So that that one really hit home when uh, when I found out who it was that was involved in that accident. Um, with respect to, to what happened this weekend, though, you know, that story could have been heroic rescue because, you know, that individual right. had been wearing a life jacket. And, and just the change that we could have had in reporting that story, or at least the, the percentages of right. being able to report the story that way. And I, I know that's not going to be solace to the family, but, you know, you no, always no. look for a way uh, to to make good out of, out of sad situations. So if this person having to lose their life convinces even one or two people who had not been wearing life jackets before to start wearing them now, then at least it was not or, you know, for, for a lost cause. I want to just uh, shift the conversation just a tiny bit because uh, Jeff Courier had mentioned this in the newsroom the other day, and we didn't really receive official notification of the fact that the spruce, or the, pardon me, the Pine Grove uh, wayside rest area between Steinbach and the Manitoba-Ontario border on the Trans-Canada Highway was closing. Well, we have a letter here uh, that was posted to Facebook. Zach's Burger Bus used to deliver the goods, so to speak, at that rest area. And uh, he received a letter suggesting that uh, that rest area is now going away. Jeff, you and I have both done a ton of long-distance driving, and I know Kelly and Tris, we've all done our share of long-distance driving. Yes, in a country like this. <laughs> you're right. But when you see rest areas closing, it That's makes crazy. zero sense to me. There's so few in Manitoba, and there aren't... You still and you never get the like the quote unquote the good ones that you get in the U.S. or in Ontario along the 401 where they have got like a Tim's and a Burger King and a KFC attached to them and a gas station and all that. So, yeah, I don't know why you would close a rest area of all things, especially along that Trans Canada Highway. Wouldn't you think, Jerry, with all the collisions and and we start hearing that uh, being tired is as bad as being intoxicated, distracted is as bad as uh, being intoxicated. We're, we're learning all these things about how driving while you're exhausted is bad for you. Why would we, why would we shut down a, a rest area? It, it makes no sense. I mean, how, it can't cost that much to keep one of these things open. I mean, really, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that expensive. 
Behind the glass, Jerry, Tristan Field-Jones, Kelly Moore, Jeff Braun, thank you very much. And you can always weigh in at 204-780-6868. You can text us your thoughts, or you can email Brett at cjob.com, gmac at cjob.com. It's Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB. I wish you could see the look on Greg's face right now. It's his birthday. And we left the segment open at 7. I actually forgot about this. Totally forgot about this. I knew this was coming, but Tristan says I'm working on something for 7 o'clock. And I said, okay. Uh, Jerry says, what are we doing here? I said, I guess we're going to talk about the, uh, the royal wedding. And then in walks Greg's friend, our friend, CJOB's friend from San Diego, and the look on Greg's face of surprise, <laughs> I wish I had my camera ready for that. Mr. Mordland, how are you? Greetings. It's good to see you, man. Good to see you. I complete, Yeah, this was a nice surprise for me, too, because I had been warned, but Greg's got tears in his eyes. Here's box Kleenex, Greg. <laughs> wow. Wow. I, wow. Well, I had to be in town. I heard it was a provincial holiday today. <laughs> you know, I know you do the national thing on Monday, Victoria Day, but then today's is, Greg Mackling Day. This is uh, overwhelming, Scott. <laughs> My word. I mean, I've gotten used to seeing you over the last year since you first came to Winnipeg last July. Yeah. And Should of I course, put these on, by the way? Yeah, go right ahead. Um, settle in. Uh, to see you here today, it's absolutely mind-blowing. My word, I love surprises, but this is this is beyond uh, question. Yes. Uh, nothing I was expecting, not even in the back of my mind. So I, That's why I was hoping to pull this oh off. Oh, my word. Yeah. Oh, my word. Yeah, I've had this plan for about six weeks, I think. Four oh, to six. Oh, my word. Six weeks? I'm not supposed to be speechless. I'd say so. Now, I'm guessing you were probably hoping that there would be a hockey game tonight as well. Oh, boy. Don't get me started. Yeah, I was really, (laughs) I was hoping. I had visions of Greg and I and whoever else, you know, hanging out somewhere, watching game six and maybe going to praying for a game seven. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I I would have gone on StubHub and got my ticket. So, Greg, you know, for those who are unfamiliar with Scott, can you just give us a quick recap? Well, um, you know, Scott, why don't you tell the story? The San Diego Chargers, as I tell the story for you, the San Diego Chargers uh, just over a year ago, right? Decided, I guess about a year and a half ago, Mm -hmm. announced that they were moving to Los Angeles, which meant you were being deserted by the team that you'd grown up loving. That's right. That's right. And... uh, you know, uh, coupled with that, you know, the whole NFL thing, I just, the the monster that it is, you know, I, I couldn't find it in my heart to be affectionate toward another, you know, NFL franchise. And so, you know, I thought, okay, I'm going to look around at the CFL and check out the teams up there. And, and after I looked at the nine teams and it was funny when I looked at Winnipeg, you know, the name I could, Winnipeg, Winnipeg, and, and how could I not reflect back on my, my own childhood now we're getting away from football, but back to hockey. And, you know, I, my dad and my mom took my brother and I to really every hockey game. Uh, preceded, the Mariners were preceded by the Gulls, which is a minor league franchise. And then the Mariners were born, thanks to the WHA. And, of course, right within that league were the Winnipeg Jets. And so that's where Winnipeg definitely stood out in my mind. And I remembered all those, those wonderful years of going to those hockey games, and we dreamt not just me as a youth, but adults dreamt of the NHL one day showing up in San Diego. And this is back when the NHL might have had a dozen 16 teams, not 30-some that it has now. 
And, uh, of course, the minute the NHL absorbed the four franchises, and good for you guys, including the Jets, you know, you guys were off and running, and we were left with no team at the time. And then they tried to re... re the goals were... What's the word I want to use? Not rebranded, but it was iterations of them. I mean, different ownership, different leagues. It was all very low-level minor league stuff. And... Uh, and then we get back to, you know, more current history, which is when the Chargers, as you said, moved to L.A. And then that's why I knew the Bombers were just my team, because you guys as a city that embraces its sports teams have been through the heartache that I went through, which is when the Jets left in the 90s. And I can't even imagine that, and especially when you put your Facebook post up the other day about driving over here or getting over here to go to that last game. I can't imagine the emotions of that. I cannot so, imagine it. So I just relate to this this, this stuff. And uh so anyway. I guess it was last February. You called the Blue Bomber store to get some <laughs> to get some gear. Yeah, for my boy and I. That's correct. And uh, of course, uh, Gregory and uh, Scott ended up coming to Winnipeg last July, and we showed them around town, just trying to do the Winnipeg thing. And here we are, almost a year later, or ten months later. And uh, Scott, you and I have. Uh, become we've become brothers. Yes, we and have. Yes, we have. You, you've been back a couple of times and make that planning. four. I, this is my fourth trip. Four yeah, trip. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, we're we're counting. <laughs> Got that, Brett? Four, four trip. Okay, that's right. Yeah, it's so right. back in July. All... It's number five. Okay, number five. So when when we talk about when I talk about specifically the idea that sport and what happened with the Jets over this last six seven weeks goes beyond it transcends the sport itself it's mm -hmm. about relationships about the connections is. that you make is. this is what we're talking about that's right i mean i literally as i watched games could first of all my family makes fun of me i i put the mute on i can't even listen to the word i, I just want to watch it happen especially when they're on the road i don't want to hear the other fans cheering for their team <laughs> i'm just so pro jets right and um and i'm pacing i'm just pacing up i just came and sit and watch these games i'm so into it and a lot of that's your fault. It's your fault, Greg. Yep, yep. But you know, then, it's but Greg's you, fault for a lot of things. That's okay. Well, we'll discuss that off air. But, <laughs> <you know. laughs> but I'm, I am thrilled to be here, and um, you know, it's it's been fun planning it. You know, I'm bummed Chandelier's not here, but Tristan's been great taking over, trying to make sure this happened as we were hoping it would, because I knew you'd love the surprise of it. So. Okay, well, we're going to continue the conversation in a moment. Once again, if you're just tuning in, it's Greg's birthday. Happy birthday, Greg. And uh, his buddy Scott Mortland is here from San Diego, sort of uh, an adoptive uh, fan now of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers when his beloved Chargers decided to pack up and leave. And uh, become Greg's good friend, you become the station's good friend, and Winnipeg's good friend. There you he, go. Is an, he is an honorary Winnipegger. Um, and I don't know if honorary is strong enough a word, oh, because I think you. Uh, you feel this um, community, you carry it with you proudly wherever you go now, Scott. I so do. That's I do. amazing. To, I can't believe you're here, brother. <laughs> I really can't. You talk about, we were talking about Brothers of Action last week. Yes, Here's a right. brother of action right that's here. Right. Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry, and our good friend Scott Mortland in studio with us <laughs> from San Diego. He just strolled into the studio about ah, 19 minutes ago. <laughs> I had no idea he was here. Scott, for those of you just tuning in, Adopting uh, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers after his San Diego Chargers of the NFL moved to Los Angeles, and it's been sort of a love affair with Winnipeg mm -hmm. over the last 10 months, Scott. Yep. And maybe just 
tell people like your affection for Winnipeg and 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 how this has come about. There, there's something genuine and and special about your connection with the folks here, almost from the moment you got off the plane last July. That's right. That's right. Um, and I think that's the wow. Um, I don't get choked up either, but last. When this whole thing went down, right, when I adopted the Bombers and, and I bought the jerseys and the caps for Gregory and I, and obviously I had no clue where this thing would go. Um, and then, as you said, now fast forward to July, we get here and we get off the plane. And, you know, the very next day we're, we're taken to the, uh, the walkthrough practice, you know, at, at IGF. And it all just started with that, you know. But I think, and I, I mean this sincerely, Greg, and this is why I'm here today, is the way you uh, – the next day when I met you, you know, and you took us around town, the way you treated my boy is something. Uh... <clears throat> For those that don't know, anyway. uh, Gre- Sorry. Uh, Gregory deals with a variety of, of different issues. Right, right, uh, maybe right. you can run them down. Uh, not, just, just for, oh, yeah, yeah. Just no, for no, context I'm, I'm for an folks. open book. I'm an open book. Um, Gregory is a special needs young man. He's 22 years old, nonverbal. Um, his number one diagnosis is mental retardation. Um, he's got OCD and ADHD. Um, somewhat on the autism spectrum. Uh, didn't really see much behavior-wise until really not too long ago, which luckily we've managed with an additional medication, thank heaven. I mean, you really don't want to medicate your kids, but if they need it to make them even themselves feel better, that's great. And um, but, but back to the story, you know, just the way, you know, again, you treated him that day and then just as I've met other people in town, <clears throat> whether through this connection or just being around town, like at the Starbucks right there off of uh, on Roblin or how kind they were. And, and, and that's why your, your license plates are so accurate, you know, friendly Manitoba. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I got, I really got choked up as I was landing here. I thought, God, this is like my second home. And I mean that. And you've uh, been here how many times now in a year? Four in 10 months, Brett, let's be accurate. And uh, yeah, <laughs> 10 months. And the, the it'll no- be five in July, but it'll be five in one year. Cause let me give you some good news right now. The family's coming in July. That's amazing. We're coming for the July 27th ball game. So at the moment, it's my wife, Gregory, my daughter, and her husband, and my other daughter. And we're hoping for my third daughter and her boyfriend, hopefully. So we'll see. Well, That's Scott, the plan. Uh, I hate to cut the, the, the on-air visit short. I've got Facebook Live going on CJOB, so we'll keep it going for a couple more minutes. But uh, what a pleasure to see you, man. I, you too, Brad. I had been warned about this on Friday, and like I said, completely forgot you walked Let's in. Let's discuss thought, the oh, word yeah. warned. Yeah. What's that? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's a poor choice of words. I was, warned, I was warned not to blow the surprise. Oh, there you go. Okay, okay. And thankfully, right. because I go. forget things, uh, that was a good, there was a good chance that was never going to happen. Okay, great. Scott Moreland, thank you very much. Happy birthday, Greg. Yes. Thanks. And uh, just overwhelmed. It's time for Breakfast with the Bombers, brought to you by the Cooperators. Find an advisor at cooperators.ca, a better place for you. Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry with you on this Tuesday morning, and Bob Irving, the voice of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, joins us now. Good morning, Bob. Morning, guys. Great to have you aboard this morning, a Saturday afternoon, scrolling through Twitter, as Brett will will uh, attest uh, that I do uh, maybe far too often, but uh, <laughs> I notice all of a sudden the Winnipeg Blue Bombers release this this tweet that they have signed a rather big name from the Canadian Football League past who tried his hand at the National Football League and as opposed to going back to British Columbia, decided to sign with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, Bob. 
Uh, Greg, I think the signing of linebacker Adam Big Hill caught uh, a lot of people by surprise, even across the Canadian Football League and some of the other teams, because the assumption was that Big Hill would likely go back to the BC Lions, where he played for six years, was a four-time All-Canadian, before he took a shot at New Orleans and and, uh, made the Saints last year, was cut by them just a couple of weeks ago. And I know the Bombers approached him immediately, uh, and his agent said, well, we're, we're going to take some time and see if there's any more NFL interest. And then, lo and behold, out of the blue, they, they called the Bombers and said, we're ready to come to Winnipeg. And, uh, I mean, Kyle Walters was like, wow, this is a Christmas present here in May for the Winnipeg Football Club. So they signed Adam Big Hill. And uh, their linebacker situation was one that uh, had lots of question marks over it, and most of those question marks have now been removed. Did Big Hill actually get to play while he was in the NFL? I believe, uh, Brett, he dressed for three or four games. He was on their practice roster for a while. He did see some action. You know, he's 29 years old now, and the problem down there, unless you're a frontliner and you get to close to 30 years of age, they'll bring some draft pick in or some young guy who will who'll take your spot, and that's what happened to him. But he's a dynamic player. I mean, people who follow the CFL, he's a tackling machine and was in B.C., and uh, I just I can't say I guess enough about what a significant add this is to the bomber defense. Well, let's hear from Matt Nichols on what he thinks yeah. about Adam Big Hill signing with the blue and gold. The initial thought was, you know, don't have to get hit by that train, which uh, you know the rest of the guys in the league have to deal with now. But uh, a guy that I've had a tremendous amount of respect for, super hard worker. Um, you know, from everything I've heard about him, is uh, you know an excellent leader. It's gonna he's gonna demand the best from the guys around him, which I think those are the guys we want around here. And, and uh, I think it's honestly a great fit for this team and, and Coach O'Shea and the personality of this team. So um, you know, I couldn't be happier about that signing. And I think that, like I said, he's going to elevate the guys around him. And, and uh, aside from all that, he's, he's a playmaker that just tends to be around the ball. I mean, he had you know, tons of fumble recoveries, interceptions, big hits, uh, sacks. I mean, he rushes the passer well, too. So uh, dynamic player, big signing for us. That's quarterback Matt Nichols of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers on the fact that the Blue Bombers are are now going to have on on their sideline and in their defense Adam Big Hill and quarterbacks are the go-to individuals when defensive players are signed from other teams, Bob, in terms of what that individual brings to the opposition. And you could almost hear relief in the voice of Matt yeah. Nichols, if not the excitement, the fact that he would not have to be performing against Big Hill but would have... Adam Big Hill in the lineup on his side of the field. Well, I was chatting with uh, Matt Nichols after practice yesterday, and he was shaking his head, you know, over the fact that the Bombers were able to pull this off and get a player of Big Hill's stature the day before training camp opened. And it just underlines, and this is what Matt said, and I know the other players feel this way, it underlines uh, how badly the people who run this Winnipeg football club want to win. They want to end that Grey Cup drought, and they're doing everything they can, and I think this signing certainly signifies that. The other thing about the signing, guys, and I know we have a clip of it, Andrew Harris played a big, big role in convincing Big Hill to come here. They were teammates in B.C., and uh, Harris did a grade A recruiting job, and uh, again, I don't think we can underplay, from what I'm told anyway, the role he played in convincing Adam Big Hill that this is the place he should continue his career. Well, here's Andrew Harris's comments. I had a great conversation with him, and 
just before he signed and, you know, trying to, trying to recruit him a little bit and, you know, just talking about all the great things that the city has to offer. So uh, I'm super pumped that uh, he decided to, 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 to make the make this make the switch and, and, and come over to come over to Winnipeg and you know he's a great asset for us I and mean, he's he's a guy who practices hard I mean I remember my first year when he came in in BC he was it was, it was almost annoying to practice against him because he's one of those guys that just is scrappy he's gonna find a way to give you a Charlie horse or poke you in the eye or step on your feet because he just goes so hard and uh, he, he, he talks about being a savage and he's absolutely a savage so you know he's gonna be a great asset for us you know however he fits in in our defense and special teams and you know we're happy to have him for sure I understand you talked him into coming. Yeah, I did. I mean, I've known Biggie for a while, so um, as soon as we and we have the same agent, so as soon as uh, I, I found out that he was, you know, he was done with uh, the Saints and kind of exhausted all his uh, NFL opportunities, I definitely, yeah, I texted him right away, and then we had a, like I said, we had a 20-minute conversation the other the other night, and you know, just trying to get him to come and come through here and and uh, and help this team. So I mean, uh, you know, I told him how great the golf courses was. He likes the golf. I told him how how the, the cost of living is a lot cheaper than it is in, in Vancouver, and. Um, I mean, uh, those, those are the two biggest sells for Biggie, I think. But uh, ultimately, I think he feels like we got a great, great team. Um, and, and just, just reiterating how, how, how much of a, uh, a good environment we have here and, uh, and, and how close-knit our team is and, and, and the path we're on. And, I mean, ultimately, I think he wants to come in here and, and help us win a great cup. And, you know, and that's the goal for everyone on this team right now. That's Andrew Harris on the Adam Big Hill signing with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And Bob Irving, was this position that Big Hill is in, was this a problem for the Bombers last season? Yeah, oh yeah, it was. Well, uh, you know, they tried to sign Enoch Mwamba Brett uh, here a few weeks ago and wined and dined him and offered him a lot of money, and then he decided to sign in Montreal. So this is an area that uh, Sam Hurl was their middle linebacker last year, as I think we all know he signed as a free agent with the Saskatchewan Roughriders. But the Bombers needed to upgrade that position, and they've done it uh, in a significant way. And whether or not Big Hill actually plays in the middle at linebacker, I, I don't think matters. They'll be moving bodies around back there. But the fact that he's such a terrific athlete and a, a game-breaking player now in that position just makes them a lot better. And I would add quickly that Chandler Fenner, a free agent they signed from BC, is going to play one of the linebacker spots. It's kind of a glorified defensive back. But in two days of camp, he's been sensational. So... I think the Bombers have really upgraded that area. We were talking about Andrew Harris and the role that Harris may have played in bringing or helping Big Hill come to Winnipeg. Uh, not long after the announcement that Big Hill had signed with the Blue Bombers, uh, announcement that Andrew Harris was signing an extension to remain a Blue Bomber, we can imagine, for the rest of his career. Yeah, no doubt about it. And he, uh, he told us, guys, that uh, he's the one who sort of initiated this he went to Kyle Walters and said look you know I've never been happier in my life playing football playing here at home this has been the best thing that's ever happened to me I want to finish it here and he was going into the final year of his contract in 2018 so he said let's see if we can get something done that will carry me through another years a couple of years and the Bombers agreed and guys he's 31 years old and running backs when they get to that age typically aren't given long-term deals uh, but I think it's a tribute to Andrew Harris and the, and the way he works and conditions himself and keeps himself in great shape that the Bombers are confident he still has at least two good years left in him. So uh, that was another positive thing that occurred on the weekend. It's been all good stuff at Bomber Camp in the early stages. Eight days until the first preseason game, Bob. We look forward to hearing from you throughout the week. You bet. And, Brett, uh, you heard that Big Hill likes to play golf. Maybe you can tee up a game with him, but be careful yeah, if he doesn't like what you're doing out there, he might step on your foot or gouge your eyes out. Oh, so he won't like it when I use my uh, my hand wedge? <laughs> no, 
I don't think he'll be impressed with that. Okay. Hey, uh, one more question, Bob. Did you buy tickets for Andrew Harris's uh, wedding social? No, I haven't. I haven't heard about it. You'll have to fill me in on that. Oh, well, how he, could I have missed that? He's hosting a social. Hang on, I've got the details right here. July twenty eighth, eight p.m. to one a.m. Investors Group Field. Oh yes, I'm sorry, I did hear about that. Yeah, yeah I'll be there. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks, From Bob. Eight until one thirty, Bob will shut her down. <laughs> okay. All right, Bob. <laughs> An absolutely massive fire in downtown Brandon on Saturday, claiming several historic buildings and, uh, well, some affordable housing and really an iconic building uh, in the heart of Manitoba's second largest city. Rick Crest is the mayor of Brandon. He joins us now on 680 CJOB. Good morning, Mayor Crest. Good morning, gentlemen. How are uh, things in the aftermath as we're here Tuesday morning? Had some time to uh, digest what happened over the weekend in your uh, your beautiful city. Well, very uh, certainly a d- devastating loss on so many fronts. There's a lot of layers uh, uh, to this. Certainly, there was uh, initially the the uh, immediate response, uh, which was enormous. Uh, we did have to. Uh, count on our neighbors from uh, neighboring communities uh, to come to our aid with additional uh, fire service uh, personnel and equipment. And so really the first wave was just uh, dealing with the immediate response and trying to contain things as much as they could. And all of those uh, first responders just did a uh, fabulous job. And uh, now, of course, we're with the uh, aftermath, uh, the biggest one being uh, about 170 people displaced from uh, Massey Manor, currently uh, living in a hotel, so now the work begins to uh, to uh, find accommodation on a long-term basis uh, for those people. So uh, similarly, all of the businesses that uh, um, have lost their buildings and inventory and tools and everything else are also trying to pick up the pieces and uh, figure out uh, what comes next for all of them. Mr. Crest, do we know yet what caused this? I don't believe uh, we do. I mean, uh, in these things, the initial uh, response is the first uh, priority, of course, and then they have to wait until everything is uh, uh, safe and secure for investigators to uh, do their work. I know that uh, uh, members of the Office of the Fire Commissioner were on hand uh, kind of immediately. They would have been taking photographs uh, all along the way to help them with their investigation, but uh, I expect the investigation will begin in uh, earnest uh, today and and uh, we'll we'll see what uh, they come up with there. But Mayor Crest, what can you tell us about the building where this fire started? I remember it as a kid growing up in Brandon Christie's. Uh, talk about what was housed in that. It was a five-story building? I believe four-story, well, plus a basement, so five stories of, of uh, product involved, if you will. I believe the building dates back to about <clears throat> 1907. Uh, Oddly enough, uh, the Christie's business itself is one of Brandon's uh, oldest businesses. It started in 1881, ironically, one year before the city of Brandon was incorporated in uh, 1882. So certainly it's a long-standing uh, uh, business itself. Uh, we're very hopeful and quite confident that they'll be able to uh, uh, get back on their feet and this uh, business will continue uninterrupted, but naturally the uh, the building that's in excess of 100 years old is gone. It was a large, kind of a probably a post and beam, one of those uh, uh, with the large timbers, uh, you know, very historic uh, 
uh, style building, but by the same time, uh, when those types of biz- uh, buildings start on fire, then there's a lot of uh, uh, fuel in there, uh, so to speak, a lot of uh, wood, and, and uh, off it went. Mayor Brandon Rick Crest is our guest, and uh, Mr. Mayor, we spoke with uh, Brandon Knight earlier, Devin Ross, who described the uh, the surprise of the you mentioned it as well of the neighboring communities coming to your aid seemingly at in just the nick of time what was your reaction when that happened when the firefighters from various communities came to your aid well we do have a system and it is uh, called the mutual aid district so um it is sort of formally uh, set up that we're available to help one another um uh, our our deputy fire chief uh, did uh, mentioned to me uh, through the weekend that, uh, as far as he recalls, uh, probably at least the last 35 years that he and our and our chief have been uh, on the job, that this is the first time that Brandon has had to call in uh, help from outside. Uh, we're a little bigger operation, obviously. We've we've had to go out uh, numerous times and help other communities. So certainly, uh, the system is set up that way. No surprise at all that the uh, the neighboring communities would be uh, uh, to our side. Some of them were really on their way or calling in, can we help out before even being asked? Uh, and um, so certainly the system, if you will, worked the way it's supposed to work on, on all sides. And, and uh, I believe that uh, that really shows why the outcome, while devastating, it certainly could have been much, much worse uh, were it not for the uh, the uh, response of uh, all the fire departments, including our own. You mentioned the fact that this could have been much, much worse, and uh, I think we're just all thankful that uh, that this was managed. This fire was managed to be stopped uh, as as quickly in relative terms as it was. Mayor Crest, we know we'll be hearing from you uh, throughout the week as we uh, we find out what caused this fire. We appreciate your time very much on what's probably a very busy day for you. Yeah, not at all. Well, thanks for uh, covering fellows and uh, connecting in. So uh, we will talk to you again. All right. Rick Crest, Mayor of Brandon, joining us live. Well, I think everyone knows how to spell, say, and pronounce Vegas Golden Knights by now. I don't know why anyone is surprised that this team that did what they did to so many teams did what they did to the Winnipeg Jets to advance to the Stanley Cup final. I know a lot of people disappointed that really the the Knights essentially swept the Jets after the Jets took the first game and then Vegas goes on to win four straight. They're a very good hockey team. They are a very good hockey team, but they are a good hockey team bolstered by a netminder who is providing some of the best goaltending that I have seen in a long time in the playoffs. And so that is the great equalizer. Marc-Andre Fleury made one incredible save after another that turned the tide of that series. As ridiculous as this might sound, I'm still not sure the best team won that series. I am sure the team with the better goaltending did. Is that an oversimplification of it all, Christian? I don't think so. I think when the Jets needed a big save, the, the pattern was, you know, they they give up an early goal. They're pressing for a period and a half to get this tying goal or to get back in the game. They get a goal. It's a big moment. And then the Vegas Golden Knights score almost immediately after that. Part of that is opportunistic play by the Golden Knights. And part of it is Connor Hellebuck made some mistakes. 
There was one where he played the puck behind the net and it led to a goal. There's one where he kind of fumbled a puck in his glove and then that led to a goal. Nine times out of ten, he catches that and holds it for the face. Exactly. Off. And yeah. when the Jets needed a big save, you know, Connor Helvick was still pretty good, but when yes. you're going up against someone playing as well as Marc Andre Fleury is, that can happen sometimes. We see in playoffs the one thing that can change a series more than anything else is a hot goaltender, and the Jets were victimized by that this series. Now, Christian, I'll ask you a question I asked you going into this series where I said is the fact that the Jets only or have two days off, whereas the Knights had five or six days off. Would that work in the Jets' favor? And you said yes, but as the series went on, did, 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 was fatigue at all a factor for the Winnipeg Jets? I'm not sure if fatigue was a factor, and the players wouldn't admit to that. It didn't look like they were tired. It just looked that once the Golden Knights would get leads, they had no ability to crack the code of a team that's playing very good defensively in their own end and following a game plan to a T. And, of course, it helps that Marc-Andre Fleury is playing so solidly behind them. Yeah, I would agree, Brett, maybe that fatigue might have been a factor if... The Winnipeg Jets didn't have anything left for a finishing kick. But boy, in those two games down in Vegas, they were the stronger team in the third period. So uh, I don't think that was it. I, For the first time, though, on Sunday, I thought Marc-Andre Fleury was in their heads because I counted at least a half dozen times where guys fanned on shots that they normally would get off in a hurry. And he was the cumulative effect of not scoring throughout the entire playoffs really had really played on Nikolai Ehlers on that one power play. He would have shot if he'd have been on a three or four goal uh, scoring streak, but because he hadn't scored, he was looking for someone else to do it. Yeah. It gets in your head, right? And you yeah. start looking for, you pass up normally. It doesn't make, it, doesn't make you a bad player. No, just, excellent yeah. scoring yeah. opportunities. And uh, there are lots of conversations to be had throughout the summer about who performed, who who didn't maybe perform as expectations would have anticipated. Uh, Ryan Reeves hmm. uh, seizes the Hockey moment. Hockey gods. Series Hockey clinching gods. goal in his hometown. How about that? First goal, by the way, since April of last year. Oh, great. Um, (laughs) So the Jets played 99 games of regular season and playoff action. Uh, Paul Stastny, the brilliant acquisition. I was trying to equate uh, the Adam Big Hill signing of the Blue Bombers uh, to that of uh, Paul Stastny uh, by the Jets at the the trade deadline. Let's even pretend for a minute, and I think there is a chance that Paul Stastny would like to remain a Winnipeg Jet. That's a personal feeling of mine based on what he said. Do the Winnipeg Jets have any money in the budget to even entertain the idea of keeping him around? That'll be the thing. I mean, when you start to uh, tally up all the contracts. Now, Patrick Lyonnais, Hmm. you know, his next deal won't count till the following year. So you might have a little bit more money off the books. I mean, they're going to take 5.25 off the books from Toby Enstrom. You know, a couple million here and there with Sean Mathias and Michael Hutchinson. But all of that and more is going to be eaten up on the new contracts for Hellebuck Morrissey and uh, Jacob Truba for sure. And then you still have other RFAs there. So it's going to take some incredible bookkeeping and a lot of give by Paul Stastny. I know we got to go. Here. I know we got to go. One word answer to the Jets: have to unload, find a way to unload Steve Mason. Yes. All right, Christian O'Mell, Kelly Moore, thank you very much for joining us. And the radio just keeps on playing all these songs about rain. I'm Greg. He's Brett, and uh, Brett, we saw some rain Thursday late in the afternoon all into the evening and pretty much all day Friday, which is something that we really needed to the point that Conservation Manitoba was even 
able to lift some of the campfire restrictions and some of the burning restrictions. Those were also limited, eliminated in the city of Winnipeg. But north, basically the, the interlake or the escarpment or the Canadian Shield north, still dr- tinder dry, dries the bone. We're seeing uh, forest fires in, in, in the uh, interlake and uh, northern Manitoba, north of the Paw. Uh, that's still a serious situation without question as it pertains to the lack of moisture. Indeed, and we wanted to find out if the recent rain, was it enough? Was it a benefit for farmers here in southern Manitoba? So we're joined by the president of Keystone Agricultural Producers, Dan Mazur, live on 680 CJOB. Mr. Mazur, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. So the rain that we got Thursday, Friday, was it enough? For the farmers that got it, uh, yes, it was. It was good. It was a good start off to the growing season. And it went right along southern Manitoba, and it started actually Deloraine, Boisevain came, scooted right across the whole the border there and then kind of veered up into Winnipeg. So I think it covered uh, Carmen a little bit and Winkler-Morton area and then up into Winnipeg. So those areas definitely benefited from it. Um, it was not a case of, oh, we, we went in wet in the spring or anything like that. It's been it's one of those more startling things. It's been so dry for so long. Like We, we never did get our April showers, um, that there are April rains that kind of warmed things up and got things growing. We we never did get that this spring. So that, that was a concern, and it's still some concern uh, across the most of Manitoba. So if we go back to October 2017 and we do the math on this stretch of time from then until now, I understand this is the driest such period in the history of of weather record keeping in Manitoba. It wouldn't be surprising, especially for the valley. Uh, Red River Valley, um, I think we all saw the around... Um, like Eli area and south south of Winnipeg, the the soil was bare. You folks uh, barely uh, had any um, snow at all this winter. Whereas where I, I farm out in the Brandon area and western Manitoba, we we had a decent cover for uh, snow cover, and it melted. As we remember, April was very cool, so it was uh, it was later melting, and and that all went in <clears throat> into the soil this year. But there was very little recharge this year, and I think that that's probably the concern that's coming up now like so our our dugouts don't get recharged or wells things like that are going to start showing up uh, as we move into the growing season. Dan how much money do Manitoba farmers spend getting ready for the growing season? Well it's uh, 2.6 billion dollars farmers invest into their crops every spring through uh, fuels uh, seed and uh, fertilizers so that's that's what we're putting into the soils right now and, and investing in to try to get a crop growing. So would this be a different scenario, scarier scenario, maybe 15 years ago, Dan, uh, based on the, the changing technologies and the way Manitoba farmers conduct business? Are we able to mitigate the effect of this dry season better now than we might have in years past? Yeah, I, yes, uh, through practices such as minimum till. Uh, we have uh, tools and 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 uh, available to us now that we we've changed our practices. If you remember the '80s, we had a couple of droughts in the '80s and '90s that uh, changed the way we farm, especially in Western Manitoba. I, I guess I go back. The, the Red River Valley is different, and it, it, it's usually more it's wetter, and, and they they deal with things differently there, and they have different soils. 
We still have, we're very blessed here in western Manitoba, though, as, as far as the clay soils, and they're very wet. They have the ability to hang on to moisture for a very long time. So as long as we get a root growing uh, in into that soil, we, we can grow a decent crop with a very limited amount of moisture as long as we look after that and make sure we have uh, the topsoil covered with trash and things like that. So it's... it's uh, being conserved underneath there. The winds, uh, I think, would take more away from anything in these hot temperatures. Like 30 degrees May is is concerning. You've got little plants trying to come up through the soil. Uh, that's, if the wind gets up at all, it, it's hard on everything. It's, 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 uh, they need water to survive. Well, just looking at the, the long-term forecast here from Environment Canada, and Thursday there is a 60% chance of showers. This is just for for Winnipeg, but uh, for Friday, 70% chance of showers and uh, calling simply for periods of rain Friday night. But then starting on Sunday, you've got sunny and 31, Monday sunny and 33. So looks like we'll get maybe a little bit of rain and then some some heavy heat for any time of year, really, never mind the month of May. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's a concern. As long as we have things growing we'll, we'll be all right no winds don't I, I keep on going back to these winds it, i i just can't get over how tender dry things are like even our grasses i think that's the other part of the story that uh, we're not telling too much like while we're focusing on our crops that we're seeding and trying to get growing and and things like that there is a lot of there's another 10 million acres of grassland in manitoba that the ranchers provide are dependent upon in grazing uh, cattle and that normally we get a nice spring rain and we get some nice growth. Uh, right now, that crop for that uh, that grass is depending on just the, the winter melt, and that's posing some problems not only uh, uh, from uh, trying to survive to continue growing grass for June and July when the real heat hits, uh, but uh, even these these fires that are starting in the grass areas. We're we're hearing stories. I just can't get over the the deadfall that's happened from the last winter we're hearing stories like people just simply mowing their lawns and there's sparks coming off their mowers and it's starting to catch yard sites on fire and things like that like i haven't heard things like this this is normally a fall conversation we have not a spring conversation yeah dan i grew up in uh, brandon in the uh, late 70s early 80s and this is reminiscent in my mind of uh, 1980 that very hot dry summer we had and in that year and also just this entire idea of you know if there's not enough grass for feed then all of a sudden you're talking about moving hay for livestock and with the price of gas and and all the uh, associated issues with with transporting uh, hay for for uh, cattle, it's uh, it's turning into a potentially uh, cascading situation that we appreciate you keeping us abreast of, and and thanks as always for your access this morning. You're very welcome. Anytime, Dan. You know, before we let you go, the the fire you said that you farm in the Brandon area. Did you happen to be anywhere near the fire that hit downtown Brandon on the weekend? We're actually north of Brandon, so we saw the smoke come up. I was uh, texting with a neighbor. I was uh, seeding canola in the morning, and all of a sudden we saw this plume of smoke. And we actually had a fire out at Forest, uh, Manitoba, just, just north of Brandon, six miles, in that really windy day uh, on a Tuesday or Wednesday, whatever day. So we were, were all really on high alert in the rural areas anyways, and all of a sudden this big plume of smoke came up in Brandon, and I was, I was texting back and forth with this fellow, and <laughs> 
I said, geez, I hope that's not near anywhere near Brandon or like you know, on the outskirts of Brandon. And sure enough, it was in Brandon. It was Christie's. So it was, uh, you could see the flames, um, well, across the river, like up on the hill. Like if you just drove over and uh, looking down into Brandon, there was no problem at all. You could see him quite a few miles away. So it was, well, I guess, a four-story building going up. But uh, yeah, it was it was pretty devastating, that's for sure. All right. Dan Mazur, president of the Keystone Agricultural Producers, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you, guys. Right now, Greg actually is wearing a virtual reality headset. He's got headphones on and a full virtual reality headset. And this is something that coincides with World MS Month. It's virtual reality and understanding MS. And our guest in studio is Sebastian Michaud. He is Country Medical Director for EMD Serono Canada, joining us live here on 680 CJOB. Uh, Mr. Michaud, good morning to you, sir. Good morning, gentlemen. Pleasure to be here. So, Greg, right now, uh, can you hear us, Greg? I can hear okay. you fine, bro. He's got one headphone open. Uh, so, what exactly is Greg? First of all, Greg, we'll get you to describe what you're seeing in a moment. But first, what is he got in his head right now? So, so Greg is actually going through the MS from the Inside Out Virtual Reality Program. And the goal of that program is basically to raise awareness and empathy about what people living with MS are going through. And, and the program can be is subdivided in two main sections. The first one is all about taking through virtual reality a person in the brain of somebody with MS and seeing what happens to their nervous system to generate, unfortunately, the disease. And the second part of the program is to make the user experience some of the main symptoms that people living with MS actually are afflicted with a change in vision, change in hearing, spatiotemporal perception modification, uh, so that we can help people understand, unfortunately, how the disease is affecting those people. And tonight, by the way, if you would like to experience this, you can at the Fairmont here in Winnipeg from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m., uh, EMD Serono Canada holding an event for you to try the experience for yourself. Now, Greg... What are you experiencing right now with that headset on your face? So right now I'm getting a 3D tutorial on the effects, the causation, and what's literally going on in your brain, in your body that causes MS, the shortages, the outages within the within the different systems within your body that, that create these issues for those with MS. Uh, that was interceded with a little bit of a change of what I could perceive in terms of my vision. Uh, it added in some black spots. I was looking at a sunrise or a sunset and suddenly my vision went blurry. And unfortunately, I'm a little bit too familiar with the effects of MS. My baby sister deals with this and has been dealing with it for almost a decade. And this is uh, hitting very close to home as I am learning more about the disease in the last six minutes maybe than I've learned in the last decade since the terminology MS was introduced into our family. It's a very, very powerful tutorial, very powerful tool as far as I can tell with the you know six or seven minutes I've had with it so far. So as Greg's described what he's seen, why did uh, did you folks decide to like? Well, I guess what drove you to to come up with this solution in the first place to okay. give Canadians uh, an inside look? Okay, so so the answer to that is pretty straightforward. EMD Serono as a company has been involved in the world of neurology for almost twenty years, but being involved in a community is more than about bringing new treatment and groundbreaking science. It's also raising awareness 
for the patients and their caregivers and their loved one so that we can all commonly come as, as Canadians and better support these patients that are going through these experiences. And one of the reasons why it was so important to focus on an initiative that was combining a groundbreaking technology with raising awareness is the unfortunate fact that in Canada, we have one of the highest frequency in the world of multiple sclerosis. Any, do we know why that is? Uh, we actually don't know exactly why that is. We know that there are some factors that definitely play a role, as in the latitude. So apparently MS is a, com- is a disease of the cold, if you will, and Canada is well qualified for that. Yeah. Uh, gender have an effect. We also know there are key environmental factors, but we don't have yet a clear, precise answer as to what causes MS. And even the really basics of the disease, we are starting to have some idea, but the the clear definition is yet to come. So that's why a company like ours are committed to support research, both from a scientific, a clinical, and we are also partnering, as you can imagine, with the key clinical experts supporting their own research that the independently conceive to make sure we address all the right questions for hopefully one day bring more than just an alleviation of symptoms, but a real cure. But we're not there yet. Sebastian, there are different levels and and, and different uh, uh, variations and severities of MS. And I think that sometimes that creates problems for those that are dealing with the disease, right? Because you'll bump into someone and, and you know, how are things going? And they'll ask how my sister is doing and I'll let them know, oh, well, I had an aunt or a, or a, or my mom had MS for 30 years. She dealt with it. She had no problems. But because there are different forms of this disease, there is sometimes a misunderstanding about how severe it can be. Is that fair to say? This is a very important point you're bringing up. And it starts with the fact that most of the MS are people are dying diagnosed between the age of 18 to 50. So basically, you have somebody that looks great physically in front of you that are starting to have all those symptoms that that you do not understand up front. So this is why one of these initiatives about raising awareness is important. The other point uh, that you mentioned is that there are different forms of MS. And the most prevalent one is called relapsing remitting MS is one where the symptoms go away for maybe a year, two years, three years, but then suddenly come back. And we do not understand why they suddenly come back. Why do they go away? So you're in front of a, a loved one that's affected with MS that can be great for a while and then be in a very intense period, highly symptomatic, and then they disappear. So right now, there's a, a lot of options to go on and, and prolong those uh, period without symptoms, but there's still a lot to be done. Once again, if you want to try this virtual reality experience, you can. You can do it tonight at the Fairmont here in Winnipeg. EMD Serono Canada holding this event from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. You're welcome to stop by, try this experience for yourself. And again, that's 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Our guest has been Sebastian Michaud, who is the medical director, country medical director for EMD Serono Canada. Thank you for visiting us and thanks for doing what you're doing. Thank you very much. Raise awareness once again. Everybody's welcome tonight. Multiple Sclerosis Awareness Month. Something that is happening this weekend, this Friday, in fact, from 7 p.m. to 1 a.m. at the Max Bell Center at the University of Manitoba. It is the Relay for Life Winnipeg event. The website is relayforlife.ca. And our guest in studio is Marilyn Muir who was diagnosed with cancer 
At how old were you, Marilyn? I was 12. What kind of cancer? I had a tumor in my right chest wall. That okay. They took some time to figure out what it was, but they eventually found it. What led them to finding that? Like, what what happened? Were you were the alarm bells went off? Well, they thought that I had a pulled muscle, so I went to the hospital in Dauphin. I had quite a lot of tests and procedures done there, and they couldn't really figure it out. They just kept sending me home thinking it's a pulled muscle. And then uh, when they realized that it wasn't fluid on my lung like they originally thought, they sent me to the hospital here, the respiratory hospital at Health Science Centre. So I was there for a month. Now, uh, this is inspiring uh, to hear you share your story and how you're described. Uh, you know, uh, one of the parts of your title, of course, is Cancer Survivor. The other is Canadian Cancer Society Local Storyteller. And that just warms my heart uh, to no end. Why do, you, why do you share your story? You know, I'm, I'm very grateful that uh, the Relay for Life chose me as the Survivor Chair this year. I think that my story can inspire people to never give up really. And you have to have faith and, and you don't face it alone. And I just want people to know that I am a 36-year survivor and that we can get through this together. So when after you went through your initial treatment and surgery, has it ever flared up again? No, the the cancer itself has never. I've I, After the five years, they give you a clean bill of health, which I've had. Um, but no, I, I've been quite lucky, actually. It's almost startling to realize that one out of two Canadians at some point in their life will have cancer. Uh, that statistic, I'm not sure, hits home for a lot of people because uh, some of us in our immediate family haven't had necessarily it strikes someone that we love or someone that we care about. Most of us have not been that lucky, but one in two is an awfully startling number. It is, it is. And, and consider yourself lucky if you haven't been affected by cancer, for sure. It really affects everybody. You know, if it doesn't hit your immediate family or your extended family, then it's somebody that you know. It's a family member of somebody that you care about. So, it, it is there and we need to bring awareness and that's what's great about the Relay for Life is that it just, the research uh, goes for all types of cancer and that's what I like about the Relay for Life is that it's inclusive of everybody of all athletic abilities and it, the funding that we raise uh, goes for research to, type, to treat all types of cancers. Why 7 p.m. to 1 a.m.? You know, originally it was 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. We walked through the whole night um, because, you know, cancer never sleeps, so neither did we. And we wanted to, as a community, come together. And, you know, it seems kind of weird, actually, to, to be out through the whole night, but there are so many activities that are planned during the evening that it just, it's a fun night. So you're there with your team, um, you're, one person's on the, the track doing the, the walk, at, and then the, everybody else could be participating in the events that are planned. So it's just a, it's a fun evening. It really is a celebration, right, of what's happened in terms of research and the survivability rates of cancer that have continued to grow over the years. Um, I don't know how much we have Terry Fox to thank for that, but I can't never help but be reminded of what Terry Fox did, not only on his Marathon of Hope, but in raising awareness and, of course, the incredible amount of money that's been raised since he did what he did uh, almost 40 years ago. You know, Terry Fox is uh, one of my great heroes, and you said it, like it was his marathon of hope, and we have to give hope to people. And 
And that's why I want to share my story, and that's why my teams, Riff Raff and Riff Raff 2.0, participate <laughs> <Riff Raff>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in the Relay for Life every year. And uh, we just, you have to have hope because without hope, you just give up and it, you can't. This is a fight that is ongoing, and we need to do the best that we can. There's something at Relay for Life here. .ca, relayforlife.ca is the website, and it talks about the Survivor's Victory Lap. What's that? So the survivors and their caregivers uh, start the relay at 7 p.m. with the initial lap, and it's they're wearing the yellow T-shirts as I'm wearing now, so you know um, who's had cancer. And it's very heartwarming to see the sea of yellow, However, you know that all of those people wearing yellow have gone through their cancer treatments, but they've made it out the other side, right? So we start with the survivors because we want to honor them. And the caregivers started to walk with us as well, and which I think is fitting because nobody goes through their cancer treatments alone. So it's important to have your caregiver walk by your side. Um, for so many years, I was very lucky to have my mom walk with me because you know, when you're a 12-year-old kid, it was her and I got on the bus, came for my treatments, and she was with me. Um, it's just mobility now. She she can't make it. But, you know, I think of her, and, you know, we all, we all it's a, a, a great way to honor all of the survivors and the caregivers. And then after that initial lap is done, then everybody joins in. I had the great honor to MC the Relay for Life event in Minnedosa all oh, probably about seven years ago, which got interrupted by a massive thunderstorm uh, in the overnight hours. So that event was was uh, cut short, unfortunately. But that beginning of the evening with the survivors and then now the fact that the caregivers do join in, uh, you realize how powerful that is. But also when you speak to those that have survived cancer, there's still a little bit of a stigma where uh, family and friends are a little bit unsure on how to deal with those in their lives with cancer, whether it being helping out, uh, whether it's with a casserole or a lasagna, or even how to speak to someone who is dealing with cancer. It can be, it can be relationship ending, unfortunately, uh, for even as enlightened as we are, it, it's a factor in uh, dealing with this. I think that we've come a long way for sure from, you know, when I was diagnosed 12 or 36 years ago at the age of 12, I think people didn't really know how to interact or how to, you know, how to deal with it. And, you know, they just referred to me as the the kid that had cancer or Yvonne's child that had cancer. Um, you it know, defined you to a certain extent, it did, didn't it? It really did. Uh, you know, and, but it doesn't just affect me. It affects my family. It affected my community. And, you know, I think that we've come a long way now that people are are more open to talking about it. And I hope that sharing my story can can let people know that it's okay to talk about it. It's okay to say that you had cancer. It's okay to to, to celebrate that I'm a 36-year survivor. Um, we just need to bring awareness any way that we can. All right. Well, Marilyn Muir, Canadian Cancer Society, local storyteller and a cancer survivor, uh, joining us to tell us about the Relay for Life. Once again, the website is relayforlife.ca. It's happening this Friday. 7 p.m. to 1 a.m. at the Max Bell Centre at the University of Manitoba. Street address 109 Sydney Smith. 
And uh, again, relayforlife.ca. If you want to participate in this, uh, can you just register online? You can register online. There's still time. Uh, you can get your donations online. Uh, survivors can come down uh, and register the night of the event to participate in the survivor lap. You don't have to be on a, a team that's specifically registered. Survivors are, are more than welcome. They'll pick up their T-shirts, put them on, and walk our survivor lap with us. Now, I mentioned the event in Minidosa needing to be cancelled several years ago because of weather. Not an issue at this year's event no. here in Winnipeg. No. We're very lucky that it, it is at Max Bell inside. Um, but even if it wasn't and if it was an outside event like last year's, we did get some rain. You still walk through it because we have to... I mean, cancer never sleeps. It doesn't matter what the weather is like outside. You still... We have to do everything that we can. So sometimes it makes it more challenging, but at the same time more fun because you're more persistent that way. Well, you and the Relay for Life have already done quite a bit with over $25 million raised so far. What a just a magnificent effort. And uh, thank you for what you do. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you again on this, okay? Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And happy right. birthday. Oh, thank you. Everyone's going to Tari, the number one video game. Just about a minute left here, but Jerry, you sent us something on Atari. Something called the Atari VCS presale begins May 30th. What's this? This is the uh, first console that Atari has released since 1996. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. And I think it was the Jaguar CD, I think they released back then. It was a Jaguar, yes. This, and this thing's going to play classic Atari 2600 games and new games as well. Nice. It's even got like the wood grain cabinet. Yeah. Oh, it looks pretty sweet. <laughs> it does look nice. Yeah. And I love the old school Atari joystick. What was your favorite Atari? Because I had a 2600. I had a 2600 as well. What was mm -hmm. your game? Yars Revenge. Yes. That was my favorite too. No one ever <laughs> says Yars Revenge. Wow. Uh, what, what was that? Asteroids? Was Asteroids that was a good one. Yeah. 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 And uh, Space Invaders for me. Yeah. Pitfall nice was fun, and, too. Nice and basic. Yeah. Back and forth, shoot. Back and forth, shoot. <laughs> That's almost how they all went, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, no, I shouldn't say that, but cool, man. This is exciting. I think I might actually have to pick this up, especially with the NES Classic coming back June 29th? Uh, yeah, June 29th. All right. And we wonder why they're remaking movies from the 1980s and 1990s, because yeah. we can't get over it. I'm Brett. He's Greg. Behind the Glass, Jerry and Tristan Field-Jones in for Channel E today on 680 CJOB. And then